This work takes a long time. The gains are, are small and few and far between, and the fights are, are hard. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, and it's the end of the year, and I didn't have an interview, so we're going to do a show. I'm just kidding. We actually scheduled this weeks ago. Um, We're going to do a show with staff about what we thought was really cool stories uh, over the course of the year, Uh, and then in another week or two, uh, you will also see a story uh, with us talking about predictions for the next year and reflecting on how our predictions from last year did, I think. Sean's going to be claiming some victories and we'll be claim we'll be trying to evaluate whether or not that's accurate. Almost. To join me, we have uh that was Sean, Sean Gonsalves. Welcome back. Hey. And we also have Deanne Cuellar, who is uh, making her debut as a member of ILSR, but has been on the podcast uh recently talking about her work in San Antonio. Welcome, Deanne. Howdy. It's super exciting to have you on the team and already uh joining us in the booth. Um, and by the booth, I mean the Zoom room. So I actually wrote down a bunch of things. Um, almost everyone else just got to choose one. I told Deanne that she could choose others, but she hasn't seen that message yet. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to chat with different members of the staff about um, top stories that they wanted. Um, not everyone has time. A lot of people are trying to wor- uh, finish up their work so that Santa will be good to them. Um, and I thought I would just start with with my biggest one before we bring on uh, Dosley is going to be our first guest. But before he comes on, I am going to throw out uh, my big story of the year, my most exciting one, which is two states reverse preemption. I just I mean, like I've been waiting for years to say one state had reverse preemption, two states, Arkansas, unanimously, Washington, Big fight. Did not expect it to go through there. They got rid of preemption. And then in Ohio, Charter Spectrum was like, well, we're going to bring one back on the board. And Ohio Republicans joined with everyone else in the state to say, no, this is a terrible idea. We need to keep Ohio able to invest in their communities to make sure that they have high quality access. That's huge. Sean, this is something that we'll talk about in a little bit more depth because you predicted um, a number of states would do this. And I was, I think, not as supportive. We'll, we'll go back and look at the tape. But um, <laughs> yeah, let's look at the tape. What's uh, what's your reaction to, to my top story? It's I mean, well, first of all, of course, it's great news um, and not not because I think it made me close to being right um, on, on, the, on the prediction. Not quite right. But um it's amazing that these laws still exist, especially now. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, this kind of movement is good. But, I, I, you know, it, the, the other thing, too, that I think is uh, interesting about the rollback is how bipartisan it, it was um, in Arkansas. Um, you mentioned Washington. There was a fight, but still uh, community broadband prevailed. Um, and then in Ohio, I thought it was interesting, too, again, you know, like a, a bipartisan pushback on on the effort to institute a municipal broadband ban there. So, um, you know, the closer you get to a problem, the more sense that you have. And I think, uh, you know, elected officials, uh, the closer they are to constituents have a, have a better sense of, of, of these things. Um, and, um, probably are a bit more attentive to, um, constituents than federal lawmakers are in a lot of instances. So, so, it, you know, I think it just underscores, you know, where the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the closer you get to the to the to the locality, 
at the heart of problems, um, the more likely they are to be resolved in a way that works for folks. Yeah, and if they don't, there's consequences, and people know who to who to get upset with, which is good. Um, I think, Sean, your point there does make me bring a little bit more, which is like, I mean, we're heading into the, um, we're going to have the third year of the pandemic here in a few months starting and to still have limitations on communities being able to solve this dang problem is, uh, uh, maybe not worth cheering, but, uh, Deanne, how, any, any, any additional thoughts on, on these states getting rid of their preemption? I just want, wonder like how long can they keep up? Um, the strength for the fight. I always worry about, um, you know, momentum and fortitude. Like, can we, can they keep it going and can other states join in? That's, that's my only thing I worry about is it seems like um, states and allies have the strength in them to start the fight that leads to some of them getting elected and, and then it wanes. Um, So I just worry about like, how long can we keep up the fight? Yeah. Spoken like someone who spent a lot of years trying not to get burned out. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, the other thing too, is I think that, um, you know, we're, we're familiar with this issue, but I, I, I would wager that even in, in those States that, that where these preemption laws exist, there's probably a lot of people in those States that aren't even aware that those laws exist. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think like South Carolina, um, probably like a lot of people there don't, don't have a sense that it's an option and don't have a sense that, uh, the state won't let them do it. So, well, in the interest of time, though, we're going to move on. Um, let's jump into uh, Daz Lee, Outreach Coordinator. Um, Daz, what is uh, the item that you wanted to talk about as a big story of the year? Well, I don't really have a story per se, since a lot of my work focuses on engaging with people um, rather than like just specific incidences. So I'm going to actually talk about the digital divide, um, its importance, and after, a, you know, almost a little bit over half of a year here at ILSR, um, my thoughts and opinions on what it looks like, the importance of it, and why everyone should care about it. Cool. So I'm just going to say your story is basically um, the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which for the first time ever is a major piece of federal legislation that includes digital divide. So Daz, why is that important? (laughs) Thinking back for myself here about, again, a little bit over six months ago, I had no idea uh, what broadband really was. I looked at it as if it was just, you know, I've heard the word, I thought it was just a a fancy word used for super fast internet. Um, And it's not, it it covers everything from, you know, um, accessibility, uh, availability, affordability, and and being able to do the things that the internet was meant to to do. Um, I look back now on some of my experiences in life with, um, let's say, my education, um, having a high, access to good broadband that can be linked to you know, better grades, better performance, because rather than relying on a janky connection, I've got something a little bit more stable and reliable. Even things such as, you know, healthcare or looking for different resources within my community, like mental health services, telehealth, everything, you know, in hindsight now, I realize a lot of the things that have impacted my life are broadband. Um, it impacts everyone's everything. In modern society, you can't really do too much of anything without accessing the internet. Sure. So let me let me just ask you, because I feel like a lot of our audience is on the same page and a lot of our audience already understands why that's important. But let me ask you, if I'm someone who's sitting there thinking, I got mine, I got a good connection, I can afford it. What do I care if other people use the internet or not? Why should I care? Well, when you say you have yours, I guess my retort would be, does your community, um, you know, you, you look at local, you know, anchor institutes and in local areas such as um, libraries, uh, public, educa- um, public 
you know, schools, um, those places, um, the internet and broadband that they have or don't have are going to impact the community as a whole. Um, whether new businesses want to come into the area, whether people want to set, set up there for jobs. When you say you have yours and yours alone, keep in mind that your entire, I mean, broadband affects entire communities. You know, one person having great internet is, you know, it's good, but it's not enough to, you know, really invigorate or empower some of these cities that are trying to move forward into, you know, modern society um, with the tools available that are brought to you by broadband. Yeah, that's a, uh, I think you're in the right organization. <laughs> Appreciate that. So Dean Sean any any uh, any comments as we we discuss this um the the digital divide and uh and the need to to work on it? Yeah, I mean I have a I have a um a bunch of thoughts about this. I it was when I was talking to Dawes about this, he and I were texting about, you know, how how do we talk to people outside of our organization about the issue? Like what would we want to tell them? And I think that we do an excellent job because I'm biased, right? I think all of us on the podcast do an excellent job talking about this issue, but I still feel that there's still uh, rocks, you know, to turn over. There's still carpets to look under on this issue. I don't know what they are yet, but I am excited to be a part of an organization that works on a list of issues because I've been thinking as a communicator and a community builder, how, like, how do we get, from here to talking about clean connectivity or like, is that the phrase, you know, is that the, the term, is that the goal? Um, because we, we do have a bigger table now, right? Like Chris, you and I, and Sean, and maybe others on this podcast, like 10 years ago, there were so few of us, right? Like we could maybe fit in a boardroom and now there's like national conferences going on and people going to school for this. 10 years ago, I think I was literally circulating the job description that brought Lisa Gonzalez onto the staff. Because she started at the end of February. So I think I might have interviewed her in either um, January or late December. But probably we circulated the job description right now and 10 years ago. And then we settled on her in January and she started at the end or in, in, uh, in February, I believe. So, yeah, I mean, very much to the point. I mean, we have like 12 people that come to our meetings regularly now internally with our two fellows. Right. I, I mean, seriously, there's like maybe 30 people in the whole country. Like, I think I sat around a bonfire with Harold Feld one winter, like in the snow. And like, there was maybe like four or five other people there. Um, so yeah, I just like, you know, what, what research are we not doing yet? You know, like what, like I want to make a new list. I want new goals. I want new challenges. Cause I, I want to get to like the, the optimal outcome is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one, one thing I also wanted to add is that I, I've learned, you know, from my various meetings, uh, sitting in and, and talking and hearing Chris and, and some of you know, the other, my other colleagues here um, explain, you know, the importance of broadband to different communities is that meet people where they're at. Um, it doesn't, broadband doesn't mean the same thing to every community every time. Um, for some people, it means, you know, um, you know, um, bridging the, the gap to, you know, wealth disparity, you know, um, for some people it, it helps, um, you know, education. For some people, it's about, you know, the, the telehealth or, 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 or racial inequalities. It, it's all about meeting people where they are and, and, fi- and connecting t- to them and finding what it is this service can do for them and explaining to them why it's such an important necessity. Yeah, meeting people where they are. And that, that's, that, to me, that's what's cool about what um, Deanne and Dazer are doing, um, that outreach and you know, talking to folks in communities that are interested in organizing around these things. You know, a few minutes ago, I, I, I was saying that that there's, you know, probably a lot of people out there that aren't aware of some of the in the weeds kind of issues like state preemption laws. But one thing I think people are very aware of is they're sick and tired of not having the reliable 
connectivity that they that they need or um, at, a, at affordable prices. And folks are really in communities you're seeing across the country are really starting to question whether or not monopoly providers are going to do the right thing or 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 have any real incentive to 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 build better networks um, or to offer, you know, or, or for there to be competition. And so the work that we're doing, it's important because communities um, or the work I should say that Dosman and Deanna are doing is important because there's communities out there really searching for resources and now we've got the listserv and 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 all kinds of other uh, cool things coming down the pike where where communities that are beginning to think about these issues can can uh, tap into. So so that, that so I, I I'm 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 I think what Daz and Deanna are doing are, is, is super important. So Sean, you have for your item that you want to review uh, the fact that not only do communities have this interest, but now they got some money. Uh, they got some money to put toward this uh, work and actually get some stuff done. So what, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to reflect on? I should say. Well, I, well, to me, I think 2021 is like a banner year for broadband. I, I keep calling it the broadbandification of America. And this is, you know, a watershed moment. The, the infrastructure bill passed. There's a lot of excitement and talk about this unprecedented federal investment in expanding broadband access. You know, the 65 billion contained in the infrastructure uh, pack uh, bill. You you wrote about uh, the potential for a hundred billion dollars being spent last year before this year even began. Did you think right. it was going to happen? Did you were you no, writing I didn't, that and you not were like all. you were like, no, this is just this is cool, but like it's not going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was a pipe dream for sure. Um, and you know, sixty five billion is you know is a you know it's a historic investment in broad in, in broadband. But but for me, the bigger story in terms of federal investment this year is the American Rescue Plan Act. I mean, the, the, the money in the infrastructure uh, bill is, hasn't even been, been allocated yet and, and probably won't get to states and, and into communities for, I don't know, another year or so, maybe even, you know, a year and a half. But the American Rescue Plan Act is something that, you know, we have been tracking and, um, and state, that money's already been allocated. There was, what, $350 billion that states could spend on water, sewer, and broadband, although most of that went to other non-broadband projects. But then there was that specific... $10 billion, you know, pot of money specifically for broadband called the Capital Projects Fund um, that could be, well, mostly used to expand access to broadband. And, and the rules associated with CP, CPF are, are really good. It gives communities a lot of um, flexibility in terms of determining what areas are unserved and underserved and, and to deal with issues of, uh, you know, affordability. And that money is already making its way um, into states and, and in directly into communities. And so, you know, 18 states have, you know, announced plans of how much of their rescue plan funds they're using towards broadband. Some, you know, it's, you know, it's a, it's a mixed bag. Some states are essentially going to probably hand the money over to the big incumbent providers, but there are states like Maryland and Maine and, and Vermont that are doing some really interesting things where, 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 you know, community broadband solutions, local internet choices at the forefront of those plans. And so I think that's, that, 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 that's really cool that, um, and, and, you know, the, the, that $10 billion, of course, is, you know, a fraction of what's in the infrastructure bill, but that's still a significant amount of money and in, in some real significant projects can be done with it. So that, that's pretty exciting. That is super exciting. <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to be tracking where that goes. Um, it sure is keeping us busy. Yes. You know, we're tracking it on the big list. And, and no, I'm super excited yeah. about our big list and that we're trying to track that. I think that's really important. Uh, Deanne, any thoughts on that? 
I don't. I just like I really I I love hearing where we are this year. Um, again, it's 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 like um, it's the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. Um, and thanks for Sean, people like Sean who are documenting it with us. Christine, um, Christine is uh, relatively new to our team. Our, our new uh, GIS data visual GIS and data visualization person already coming in and bringing in some interesting new ideas for for us to work on. Um, what what was your reflection on the year? I mean, I'm sure you spent a lot of time thinking about broadband before um, November October. <laughs> so um, you know, as you go back now and reflect on it, what's your big story for the year? I, I guess mine wasn't exactly a story per se. Um, you know, like you said, because I'm I'm kind of new to the, I guess the profession of of broadband. Um, I I was really interested in chatting about um, the FCC form four seven seven data and um, the you know proposed changes they're going to make to making this more um, address specific and what that is going to mean moving forward when it when it actually happens. I think that's a, it's a terrific thing to talk about because this is a really big story. I mean, so much of the money that we're talking about can't actually be allocated until um, they have some better maps. And um, I'm curious because one of the things that's nice about the census blocks, I mean, 477 has tons of deficiencies, but um, it makes it easier to study, doesn't it? To like combine it with other data sets. Now we're going to have like these this data set in which we might have individual household data and whatnot. And like you'll have part of this block and part of that block. Is is that going to be more difficult for you or is that something that you're excited about and see how we can deal with it? I guess it, it kind of depends. If From what I was reading, it sounds like they'll continue to include uh, census block information in the in the form. Um, and if that's the case, then it, it shouldn't change things too much um, on my end, um, but it'll certainly make um, the information more interesting in terms of getting down to that like smaller granular level of understanding where broadband is available and where it's not. Yeah, Christine, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about like just really quickly, like sh- explain like that form and why that form keeps coming up. And um, we talked a lot about like the community outreach and the money that's, that's coming, you know, down to local communities, but can you explain a little bit more about like how, like without a good map, how difficult it's going to be for leaders to make good decisions? Um, So the, the 477 data are linked um, at the smallest level um, of a census block. Internet service providers report where they provide service based on these blocks. And as long as they serve um, or provide access to service um, to at least one household in a census block, that whole block is considered served. Whether or not the other households in that block actually have access to that service. Um, So ultimately, when we look at estimates um, of service from the 477 data, it's generally going to be an overestimation um, because of how how um, that service is defined on census blocks. So by asking the service providers to identify down to the address level, um, we'll be able to really tell where service is available and when it, where it's not. And estimates of service provided in certain areas will be much more accurate. 
moving forward. And there's going to be a whole challenge process around this, which uh, will be somewhat interesting as um, anyone who has followed over the years the stories of some of these people who have bought homes where the map said that there would be broadband and the cable company said, yes, we can serve that house with broadband. And then you you buy a house and then you try to sign up and they say, oh, you know what? We made a mistake, but it's cool. If you just write us a check for $38,000, we'll totally connect you. And like, I can't imagine. I mean, one person I talked to was just like I mean, I it ruined their life for years. You know, I mean, they had to go like, go to the they had to go to the library in order to like do basic things, and and that was not their intention. As they're trying to figure out like how do I do this, you know, I mean, not everyone is independently wealthy like me, um, <laughs> which is not true at all. Um, you know, the idea of like buying the wrong house is not like I can just be like, oh, I'll just go out and buy a different one. Like that's cool. Like I can't. Afford yeah, that. no, it's really true, and it that actually um, like reliable internet access is kind of what guided our house search here in Maine when um, we moved last year. And then there was kind of like a, that, you know, the housing market started to explode here. And a lot of people started buying homes sight unseen and most likely without checking to see if they'd actually have internet access once they moved, um, presumably to work um, from home. And we've, we've seen a lot of reports of people being astonished that they don't have access now that they're here. It's definitely an issue. It's not just the wired access, right, Chris? It's wired and wireless where there's, you know, discrepancies in, in the mapping. So there's the articles of people paying thirty-eight to $150,000 to pull fiber to their home. And then there's stories of like, people just personal safety. Like, I think I can go on a bike ride by myself. And then I'm, you know, here in San Antonio, there's this famous story of an individual that went on a bike ride. They said their phone provider said they had, there was bars in that area, got out just a, you know, like half a mile out too far on a bike ride, which is not far hurt themselves and had to walk half a mile and before they could push 911. Like that's astonishing in 2021. Yes, it absolutely is. Sean. I'm, well, I'm always interested in the political machinations behind this because, I mean, obviously the mapping data is so important, but I'm always asking the question of who does it serve to have inaccurate data? Who, who does it serve to create this illusion that there's this, you know, almost everybody has access to broadband and, and don't worry, this whole area is already served. Don't worry about building new networks there or, you know, overbuilding in air quotes um, and all that kind of stuff. And so, so I look at this and, you know, and then I'm thinking about, you know, Biden's, you know, nominee for FCC chair and, and you know, the 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 troubled road ahead, it seems like to, to get her nominated and what that might mean for the work that the FCC does in in, in pertaining to, you know, having better mapping data. So I'm always constantly thinking about the the political machinations behind all of this stuff and, and who it serves to for for the status quo to remain. Yes. So two things. One, um, Jessica Rosenworcel is the FCC chair. She's been confirmed now as of this recording. Gigi Sohn is the uh, is the other commissioner who's been appointed, but we're waiting on on that confirmation uh, process. Um, and the um, the piece about the mapping and who it serves, I just think this goes to such a larger issue that we're facing in the United States of America. I don't think people appreciate how important accurate data is for everything. And uh, Michael Lewis's book, The Fifth Risk, highly recommended. It. it talks a lot and people really focus on the fact that like the Department of Energy is super important at like making sure people don't develop um, uh, nuclear weapons or, or steal nuclear weapons around the world and turn them into bombs that could kill um, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but 
the federal government in that book, he also talks about other things the federal government does, including the weather service. And all of this data that federal government does allows our economy to be so much stronger than it would be otherwise. Having accurate broadband data would help our economy to grow. Um, it would help us to learn where to prioritize investments and things like that. I think the some of the mapping is overstated. Some of it is 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 um, is done as a stall tactic um, by the incumbents, and so I don't want to like just sort of you know ignore that part of it. But uh, but ultimately, the federal government is getting worse and worse at collecting and distributing accurate data so that the economy and businesses, and the marketplaces, can all function. That's a real problem, and it's something that I feel like people don't see, and they won't even know why the economy is is slower than it should be um, because it's not there, because the federal government isn't doing its job. And that's the sort of thing that we need these agencies to do a good job. Anyway, quick hobby horse of mine. Um, let's go to Emma to talk about a project that uh, we recently published. Um, you know, it took probably six months of Emma's life. So um, definitely a big story for you, Emma. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is kind of related to the infrastructure bill, obviously, but more specifically, the legislation related to internet transparency um, that's included in the bill. And um, as you mentioned, Chris, last month, we published a report. And what that report did was score 50 of the nation's largest providers um, based on how well they are disclosing basic uh, service and pricing information. And in that report, I had two discoveries or kind of discoveries that everyone already knew probably, but you nailed down evidence for things that we all suspected, but now we can refer to something definitive. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The first one is that the transparency rule isn't really enforced at all, um, which is demonstrated by the fact that there's a lot of missing information out there, but that's not the only problem. Number two is that uh, many providers technically disclose the information that they're supposed to, but bury it in fine print statements that make it really um, hard to find. So the solution that we talk about in the report is this thing called the broadband nutrition label, which is based off of the nutrition label that you see on the back of packaged food in grocery stores. Um, and what that does is basically standardize service and pricing information um, so it's easier to find and easier to understand. And I was putting together that report as the infrastructure bill was held up in the house and it actually passed right before we published, which was more work for me, but it was great for every, <laughs> every other possible reason um, because it contained the broadband nutrition label and a few other things that were good for transparency. Yeah, I'll start with the broadband nutrition label and I wanna give one caveat, which we discussed in the report. Um, but that is that the broadband nutrition label is only going to be useful to the extent that it's enforced. So, you know, if it's just some format that providers feel like is optional for them to comply with, it's not actually going to make a difference in the way that customers are experiencing shopping for broadband, um, broadband access. But there's definitely hope there, obviously, and it's great uh, that the label was included in the infrastructure bill. And the other exciting transparency related thing that's included in the bill uh, are some plans around data collection. Good data, obviously something that we talked a lot about, we brought up already in this conversation. And there isn't a data set right now that can uh, really tell us what broadband costs around the country in like a comprehensive or accurate way. So supposedly 
the data from the broadband nutrition label is going to be used to compile a data set that'll help us get a more accurate sense of what broadband access really costs. And just the last thing that I wanted to bring up is the bill also mentions um, in this area, a series of hearings to quote unquote, assess how consumers evaluate broadband internet access. You had to put consumers in quotes for me because otherwise I would get mad at you for using that word. (laughs) Yeah, we use customers, but the language of the bill is consumers. Um, It's actually called consumer broadband label. I'm not calling Uh, it that, but yeah, I appreciate you being accurate. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But basically this hearing is um, supposed to figure out whether the disclosures that providers are currently making um, are available, effective, and sufficient. So basically whether they're meeting the needs of customers um, as those customers are shopping for broadband. So we'll see what comes out of those hearings, what comes out of the plans for better data collection, uh, as well as you know the extent to which the broadband nutrition label is actually enforced. But it's definitely heartening to see those things. Uh, first of all, we didn't study things that were like, it, was, it wasn't a high bar, right? It was like, will a person know how much they have to pay each month clearly um, in, um, you know, in the process of checking out and signing up? Uh, will a person know what their upload speeds are going to be? And will they know what their download speeds will be? And um, one of the things that you found is that uh, a different data set, which was that we were using, which was um, based a derivative of the 477 data set um, is where, how we picked the ISPs. Cause we didn't want to cherry pick ISPs that would not be a very effective. So we chose a, what we consider to be an arbitrary and neutral um um, approach of identifying which ISPs we would study, which was the ones that covered the most a number of people in each of the classifications. Now, the wireless folks, um, I think it exposed how some of these wireless companies make aggressive claims about how many people they cover, despite the fact that they're actually quite small companies who don't sign people up in any of those areas. And so people from the wireless industry uh, were upset at some of the companies we included who they felt were really not representative of the wireless industry. And we we're going to be releasing an updated report with a new cross-selection of wireless ISPs, and that will show actually that the wireless companies um, are actually much better than we found, Um, which isn't too surprising because if a wireless company is going to lie to the federal government about where its service really is, (laughs) they may not be super interested in being very clear to customers. Um, And so um, anyway, I want to make sure that people understand that um, our new uh, updated report that includes other wireless companies will show that uh, many wireless ISPs do a good job of being transparent. Um, although there's still some that I think could use some work. Uh, any, any comments from Sean or Deanne about, about that, uh, the work around the transparency and um, uh, studying that sort of thing? No, I was just giggling a little bit because I think when aren't the service providers upset, you, you know, like you, if you're going to uh, do excellent work, the way that Christine and Emma and Mary and everybody on this podcast is doing is, you know, to, to just do it because you you want like the best information for the best outcome, like I said before, but, um, you know, not doing it because they're, they're going to be upset. Like, I just can't remember a time when we, any of us as advocates ever did anything and they were like, great job, <laughs> you know, thank you for that. Um, it, like, it just doesn't, it doesn't happen, you know, but the, but the community uh, impact does happen, right? Like the community doesn't come to an organization like ours and say like, we're so upset about what you found that, you know, I think almost always the, the communities that we work with are, are so grateful, 
uh, for the work that we do. Deanne, um, I, I don't disagree with anything that you just said. At the same time, like I find it hard in doing this work to sort of straddle two realities. One is that there's so many people for whom there is no ISP that is doing a good job. And the other is some uh, places where people live in that area and they're like, well, I'm going to create an ISP and I'm going to use this technology. I'm going to do the best that I can. And then they perceive someone like us coming along and being like, you're doing a shit job. And they're like, well, look, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I, you know, like I've got a few employees We're we're investing as fast as we can. And so the challenge I think is, is to make it clear that like, I don't think we can have infrastructure that delivers the high quality of service that we want if we're going to have it delivered by people who are going to be the only ones effectively in an area, they're doing the best they can. Like at a certain point, like um, they may, they will see it as an insult. There's no way not for it not to be insulting, but like there's some things for which, you know, a small local company may not be the right answer to do. Um, you know, in, in some cases it is particularly where we can have multiple employees, but there's just this like this reality, which is both that those companies are really doing a community service as they see it. And yet, like, they're just not capable, perhaps because they have, the federal government hasn't given them the right spectrum or or whatever. But it's this it's this tension in our work. And Sean, you, I think you see that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, fair point. And, you know, uh, and, a, and a lot of what we're doing, you know, there's nuances to it that we need to um, be cognizant of and, and honest about. But as it relates to transparency, it's like that's like the lowest bar. Like, I don't want to hear you're doing your best if you can't tell me what you like. I, I could have a hot dog stand and I work it 16 hours a day. If I can't do something basic, like tell you how much my hot dogs cost, then it, no amount of, oh, this is such hard work. I'm doing the best that I can. I'm working. Transparency is the bare minimum that anybody in business ought to be concerned about. And so the reason why I think Emma's report is so important is just, you know, is just that, is that as it relates to transparency, it should be straightforward. How much does it cost? What service am I getting? And, yeah. and, and, it, and, it, and it's frustrating that how difficult it is to get that information. I mean, Emma spent months digging, through, digging for information, basic information, and, and had trouble finding it with, with some providers, which is, you know, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say there, there, there's this other um, uncomfortable space is hearing directly from the consumers or the customers in the community, right? Like there's just that field work that I've talked to you and Dawes and people hear a lot about is going out to the community and talking one-on-one -on -one with the people most impacted. That takes a long time. Cities, you know, the government, um, people like us, service providers, they don't want to do that work. But almost always when you do that work, that's when you really get to like the pain points in the community and you really hear what's going on. And I, that's what my biggest takeaway from working with um, seniors and older adults over the last few years was getting to hear from them about um, the, the difference in services and lack of service that they had in their community and really what that end product was. And I wanted to close that this subject out by noting, first of all, I just strongly agree with both of those points from Deanne and Sean. Um, the additional thing is I feel like it's impossible again to release a report like we did with Emma's research uh, that Emma wrote without companies feeling embattled. But I feel like we're not saying these are bad companies. 
We're saying like, look, there's a problem here with the transparency. And that's the FCC's job. <laughs> you know, like the FCC should be reaching out and being like, hey, we have basic requirements around transparency. We don't feel that you're meeting them. And the ISP can be like, well, you know, screw you. Or the ISP might say, you know what? Um, all right, we're going to do a better job. And and I think that we'll see both those reactions. Emma? Yeah, I mean, the very, very first stage of this, originally we were going to compare private to cooperatively owned um, providers. And so I was looking into electric co-ops offering broadband and I would, you know, contact some of those providers if I was super confused or didn't see anything um, in that provider. One of them actually it's like, oh, we don't have this on our website. Like, we'll add it right now. I'll go tell management to add this information <laughs> right now. So hopefully that got changed. But, you know, it's, it's not like it's unsolvable issue by any means. Right. So um, we've got a couple of stories left. Marin, um, let's talk about um, another one. You, you're, you're focusing on one that was uh, close to your heart that you reported yourself and I think is, is indicative of broader trends. Uh, what are you bringing to the table? So I didn't say Emma is um, is a research associate, um, had been an intern, um, just did terrific work and has joined the team as a research associate. Marin um, has been um, on the show in the past and uh, people know her as both uh, media producer and uh, researcher, a senior researcher with ILSR. Thanks, Marin. Thanks for the intro. Yeah. So I wanted to focus on the story that I recently uh, wrote um, about Maine. As Sean said, like, 2021 has been a banner year for broadband. There's been this injection of funds. And with that comes kind of this battle over where that money is going to go, if it's going to go to the incumbents or if it's going to go to municipal solution or community-led solutions and municipal um, networks. So I wanted to see, you know, it takes a lot for a community to get from just having the idea of of building its own network to actually getting it on a ballot. And like, what is the process um, in, in making that happen? What are the barriers that stand in the way? And once you get it on the ballot, like, how do you get people to vote for it? Um, and so something that we saw with um, the November election was that there was actually an opposition campaign that went out across Maine um, in a few different communities. Um, and I focused in this story specifically on Leeds and Hamden. And so there were a few different issues. Like it wasn't clear cut what the barriers were. I think a lot of the coverage that's been done about how things unfolded in these two towns has been focused primarily on the campaign. Um, but there were there were a lot of things and... Um, while every community is different, there's some lessons to be learned from what happened. So Leeds had a robust like education campaign, actually, before the vote even happened. They did a survey monkey where they had they basically collected everyone's email through the survey monkey so they could, you know, reach out to folks. But they also were able to collect data and show people like this is what our community's actual uh, access is, you know, this is where it's lacking. This is where we need to help connect the rest of our community. Whereas Hamden didn't really, didn't do that. Um, they did have a number of public forums uh, where they tried to educate the community and help kind of answer questions. Um, but it just wasn't as robust, I think, as Leeds was. Um, the other thing that Leeds did was they kept, you know, the the board of selectmen abreast of like everything and made sure that they were clear on any questions that they had. And 
that also was somewhat of an issue in Hamden. There were some members of, or selectmen, there were some selectmen who were kind of on the fence. And even to get it on the ballot, it it passed by a tight margin uh, through the board of selectmen. There was this struggle of getting people all on the same page in Hamden. And Mm -hmm. that, that, led to ultimately when a campaign, when a negative campaign came into the town, the board of selectmen told the broadband committee to hold off on educating the community and kind of correcting some of this misinformation. And the misinformation was, you know, your property taxes will be increased. You'll have uh, less access to community resources, just, you know, absurd, absurd things. Yeah. This is this. I mean, this is something that uh, again, I think is like, basic communications. And I, I think, you know, people who take a lot of time to study things and and mull over their decisions for a long time, I don't think they appreciate I, a different way of saying it is people like, like I change my mind more frequently than most people. Um, and it can really annoy people. I found when you when you do that, a lot of people don't change their mind. And so like, if you're letting people, um, you know, marinate, in rumors and untruth, like it's not going to go well. Like, and this is something my wife talks about a lot. And I think it might be, um, it might be Brene Brown, which is a, a name that we haven't said enough, which is like popping up all over popular culture. It seems like, like, so I just want to say her name. <laughs> my wife's a big fan. And like, you know, we tell stories, like we are, our brains work by telling stories. And if you're not getting your story out there, you're in trouble. Um, in Lafayette, Louisiana, one of the most conservative places in the entire United States, they had this massive, like three year fight with uh, the cable and telephone companies uh, over a municipal broadband network. And they had a mayor who I just get the idea that like, and I just, I love this, this mayor, um, despite the fact that like, I think our politics are extremely limited and where they overlap, but like, he just had this sense of like, if, if the cable and telephone company started lying in public, he said, I'm gonna have a press conference. And I get the idea that like, sometimes it might've been like an hour later, like, you know, a rumor goes out and he's like, he's on this, the Capitol steps or the, the, you know, city hall steps. And he's like, listen, anyone who wants to know the truth, here it is. Like, in responding to it and and i mean like there's there's times where you want to when you want to keep your powder dry but this is not them you got to make sure that people know what's going on if you're doing this sort of effort yeah and that was something big that uh peggy schaefer from connect Maine from the connect main authority pointed out was that it needs to be like you need to be treating um this effort and this initiative like a campaign like you need to be really out there making an effort, tracking the people that are interested, that are showing any interest in making sure that they vote, making sure that they're spreading the the same information and are clear on what the information is. Like it needs to be a political campaign, basically. And one of the things too, that I'll just mention in Hamden is that uh, Charter Spectrum actually put, when they put in their offer, which is part of the reason why the selectmen decided not to, you know, counter right. the Right, they're campaign. thinking about building a municipal broadband and Charter Spectrum along with TDS are both like, hey, how about if we just suddenly do our job and expand? Right, um, right, exactly. And so they put in their offer that, like, you need to stop this, you need to to basically stop this campaign, um, otherwise we're not going to build out. Um, and so that's part of the reason why they why they went quiet. And it's just a shame because they're now they're waiting basically for these incumbents to build out and um, hold true to the commitment, the letters of commitment that they signed. But if history serves us, um, you know, that most likely won't happen, unfortunately. Sean? Yeah. So uh, I was very interested in the story because I think it's a harbinger of, of things to come. Now that the infrastructure bill is passed, the fight is not going to be in Congress anymore. I think 
um, the incumbents and, and the big telecom and cable lobby will turn their sites to, to the states. And, um, and I think we'll see a lot of these type of campaigns. Like here in Massachusetts, where I live, there's a lot of communities that are not in the Berkshires in, in rural parts, but in more of the population centers in Massachusetts that are thinking about or making plans, um, serious plans. They, they're, they're setting up telecommunication, telecommunication utilities. They're looking to move into the municipal, municipal broadband space. And I think that those communities ought to be prepared to have a, have a fight in, 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 in terms of and be ready for it and to take lessons from what's going on in Maine. I mean, certainly in some communities where there are proposals to build, um, you know, municipal networks that maybe, you know, some of the big providers aren't really interested in because, you know, there's not enough money to be made there, then, you know, maybe, maybe not. But I think in a number of communities where, um, where these companies, you know, see these um, municipal broadband efforts as being an existential threat. And, and so, you know, it makes, you know, from a sort of Machiavellian point of view, it makes sense that they'd spend $5 million or whatever on a campaign if they feel like, you know, their, their, their market is at stake. And, and, and I think that to also to Marin's point that, you know, educating folks, you know, sometimes I think oftentimes when people work in a particular space for a long period of time, they think the stuff that's obvious to them is obvious to everybody, but almost nothing is obvious to everybody. And so you always have to be explaining things to folks, not in a condescending way, because people don't, you know, fall out of the womb knowing this stuff and people's lives are busy and maybe maybe focused on other, you know, really important things in life and, you know, haven't had time to pay attention. And, and so we shouldn't be treating any of this stuff like it's super obvious to anyone because it isn't. And we should also be prepared uh, or community should be prepared to um, really spend, you know, treat this like cam- a campaign and take that seriously and not as an afterthought, not as a, oh, let's focus all of our energies on the financing or, or on the feasibility and, and these kind of things. You, there, there needs to be a real concerted effort to keep local officials, community members um, informed and, and, and not treat folks like this stuff should be obvious. Excellent. Deanne, what was your story? Well, I was just going to say that um, I've shared uh, Marin's article with, you know, people I know locally here in San Antonio and other cities. And I, cause I think that, yes, let's move to the space of running these, um, you know, launching these projects and working with communities like it is a campaign because it, at the end of the day, we are persuading people uh, that, you know, community broadband networks um, are the community resource that, that, that they need to build and, and that what they need. The one caveat about sharing the story about Maine that always happens is that local communities will say like, well, we're not Maine or, or we're not, you know, Los Angeles. And it's true, like every community has its unique characteristics, but the, the fight with um, companies that are always on the opposite side of us or on the opposite side of history, uh, the, you know, they're not that unique. You know, we, they, we can pretty much depend on, you know, the unwillingness you know, to work with us and we can depend on threats and we can depend on these like heavy handed um, talking points that really do scare communities. Like, you know, the hearing the word property taxes, like that would trigger anybody, right? Anybody that's a homeowner um, or, or not. So I think that in that way, there are um, there are frameworks and messages that we can duplicate and, um, and use a- across communities. And I think if, 
you know, the, the persuasion part is the word that I, that I always come back to saying it because I, I like the way Sean used the word Machiavelli, <laughs> the Machiavellian, like that for me, that perfectly, you know, explains my experience working with um, big ISPs is that um, it's, it's like, how uncomfortable can we make them before they do something? Uh, and, and so I think that we can re- reverse that tactic. It's like, you know, how can we work with communities until we get them the connectivity that, that they need? Absolutely. So uh, last story until I have a, just a couple of others I'll run through real quick. But DM, um, what did you want to highlight? You know, the one thing that I wanted to highlight was, you know, I only had one question in my mind that I think I mentioned earlier is like, where, where do we go from here? And I kind of wanted to like, just see if anybody had like one sentence based on the work that they were doing. Like, because I, I do think that um, although we have a year before we see a lot of these things uh, getting stood up off the ground, I think that that's going to go by really quickly. And I think that we're going to have to, um, like we do in roller derby, um, elbow our way to the front. Um, so I, Christine was the first person I thought about because of the mapping that she talked a little bit more, but you know, I, I wanted to ask Christine, like in a perfect world, um, if you, we had solved this issue with mapping, like what is, what does that look like? I mean, I would say it would contain things like, um, you know, the specific address information that we talked about earlier, but I think it would also incorporate some of what Emma was talking about in terms of cost. Um, so you can really get all of that information combined on a map and display where costs um, are distributed across the country and where you see, you know, peaks and valleys and and um, and how that is um, getting uh, distributed across the country. So we can help work towards more um, equitable access um, across the country um, because I think that's kind of the ideal, right? I have to say that I'm afraid I'm going to take a Sean attitude here. And Sean, I think, I think is like the most realistic slash pessimistic group often in like internal calls. And that's uh, I don't, I don't like, that's one of the hardest problems that I just don't see. Like, I don't see us having a great data set, like in the future. Like I, my crystal ball doesn't have that. Like, I feel like, um, it would be interesting. And I feel like we could really make more efficient and smarter investments if we had that kind of data set. But I guess like one of my early predictions for next year is don't count on it, <laughs> you know, which is good. Cause that's why I'm really excited, Christine. Like I feel like your creativity and enthusiasm is going to be really important as we wrestle with the, the data sets that we do have. So anyway, I just sort of, I was thinking about that as I was, as, um, as you were answering the question, unfortunately. <laughs> I yeah, think that, that's that would be the ideal. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's not yeah. exactly realistic. No, and I think it's really useful because I could be wrong. Like, I mean, like we could have really great data in two or three years. Like, it's not impossible, but. No, no, yeah. certainly not. I mean, the information is out there. It's just getting people to share it. <laughs> that's what drives me nuts with so many of these things, right? There's things that are like unknowable, but there's things that are knowable and we just don't have them. And that's, that's where I feel like I, I get frustrated. Right. But this is this is why I asked the question, like, where do we go from here? And we don't have to all have answers. I think it's just a question for us to think about going into 2022, because I am also very um, pessimistic about this work. I, I I just have to be happy while I'm doing it because the you know, it, it's long. This is long. This work takes a long time. You know, the, the gains are, are small and few and far between and the fights are are hard. You know, I'm considered a Pollyanna in this work, right? Like, because I think the sky's the limit. You know, I want to climb to the tower and give it away for free. 
but that that's why I just kind of want to go into the new year with like, what's, what's possible, you know, like where, you know, what, what can we do that we we're not doing yet? Um, you know, so that we can keep going. See, I think about this a lot and I want to hear what Sean's reaction is to that. And what I'm about to say, which is that I think Sean and I are both furious optimists, like and like you would not notice it because like we're angry a lot of the time and like we might we might hide it in different situations but like but like I feel like I can't help but be optimistic so um but at the same time it's like it's like informed by this like anger of knowing like how much we've already screwed up yeah I I like how you put that 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 (laughs) I how furious I I gotta remember that the next time somebody says that I'm a cynic I'm gonna say no I'm a furious optimist um (laughs) So to the question, to Deanne's question, you know, what, what we should be doing, I think, you know, a big part of what we should be doing is, is, is more of the same in this, in this sense, in that I think that providing context and examples for other communities, and I get that, and people say this all the time, oh yeah, but our community's different. Well, yeah, but it's often, oftentimes people use that as an excuse to like to kick the can down the road because the flip side of that coin is, oh, really? There market principles. There aren't certain market principles that work everywhere, or that there there aren't commonalities everywhere. You're not, you know. It, so it's like I like the idea of providing example after example after example after example of various communities, unique communities, finding a unique local solution, and 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 the power of that is to you know, first of all, showcase that it is possible and it does exist and you can do it too. And that's, that, that's powerful. And I think also, I think there's a, a hunger for, okay, how do we take advantage of the, the various funding and, and grants that are available and, and how should we be planning how to move forward? Those, those, those I think are, I think where, we can provide the most value to communities in terms of, you know, giving folks that knowledge, knowing that, you know, not every community is going to build a fiber to the home network. Not every community is going to have an open access network, but you know, there's, there's all kinds of different ways of of getting there and communities are unique, but there are certain basic factors that all communities are wrestling with. And to the extent that we can, provide information to folks that, that lets them, that, that gives them the confidence as well as some contextual knowledge and maybe even some connections, you know, with the, the outreach, you know, putting folks in touch with folks in other communities so that, you know, they're able to hear the stories of, of what happened in Maine and, and, and how that might prepare them for what, you know, their plans. That's why I think, you know, we can get kind of like the biggest bang for the buck. Yeah. I think about this, and to some extent with uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where the city administrator um, refuses to be like, well, they're not like us. Like they've got two more people than us. And I, I reflect on uh, every now and then I dip into the flash on the CWB or the C- CW, CW. And um, and it's like, you know, like if storylines are constantly involving other parallel universes. And I feel like you can go into parallel universes for some of these people and be like, look, this is what they're doing. They got the same number of people. The same stuff's happened all there. Like it's the exact. Nope. Different universe. Like. <laughs> It's different. Like, there's just some people who are just going to use that excuse. And, like, at the same time, like, it's not wrong entirely, but, like, the point is not to, like, be a carbon copy. Um, so anyway, I want to wrap up with a couple of things. One is, um, it was a hell of a year, uh, for tribal broadband. 
the tribal priority window um, has delivered, I think, more than 400 licenses to 300 tribes or something like that. Um, we have uh, an unparalleled amount of money available in Indian country that's going to the tribes. Uh, and and they, they will direct who gets the money, including uh, maybe themselves in many cases, to build the network. And um, Marin, um, myself, several other people helped out in uh, the tribal broadband boot camp. It was a, was a wonderful um, success. We're going to be building on that next year. The uh, FCC nominees, um, you know, um, no idea why it took until the end of the year to nominate the people that we knew were going to be nominated or that we hoped were going to be nominated. They just no reason for that to have taken so long and just really bad um bad missed opportunities from the administration that's frustrating um ardoff uh the rural digital opportunity fund uh boy i felt really depressed about that about 51 weeks ago um <laughs> 50 weeks ago something like that like um it was looking real bad um some of the awards have been released i think many of the good ones uh, we're going to do a story on this soon uh to just let people know what's going on there with an update of what money's gotten out what hasn't but I have high hopes that the FCC is not going to release substantial amounts of money. Let's just say I don't think they're going to give too much money to LTD, um, the the company that was the biggest winner that I think many of us have skepticism about its ability to scale to that level. Um, Iowa is stepping up with the Public Utilities Commission. They're saying, yeah, Dodds is, from Iowa is super excited at that. But the Iowa PUC is a, is a model uh, for making sure that um, if LTD is going to get this money, it would be um, able to handle it. And LTD is not demonstrating to the PUC's um, uh, you know, comfort level that it can do that. South Dakota's um, Public Utility Commission um, is uh, expressing some skepticism. There's some argumentation there. You know, we are not seeing the the the, the worst of all possible worlds, which is that, um, that, to my knowledge, I don't think we've seen any of the really bad awards that warned us that that we worried would um, lead to a community having wait eight years and not getting anything. Um, so I feel like um, that is proceeding. It's going slower than we hoped. I mean, resol- some sort of resolution would be great, but we're not in the worst timeline <laughs> in that case. So that's pretty nice. Um, there's a lot of other things. We're out of time. Um, for people, um, you know, I hope people enjoyed the show. We went way longer. We brought in a lot of voices that we don't always bring in. Um, I think it's been a fun discussion. Um, people should definitely let us know what they think about this um, in a in a private comment to me or online or whatever. Um, you know, we don't leave a lot of we don't always remind people, but leave reviews for us. You know, like if you really like the show in general, uh, it'd be great to get some reviews on these different podcast host platforms. So, um, thank you, everyone. Um, thank you, um, everyone on ILSR, um, including folks who stepped aside who um, were really busy. Um, I really appreciate people making space to make sure other people had enough time to to um, join the show and chat so um, it's been a heck of a year i really appreciate all the work that folks have done i'm really excited for next year i'm sure i'll still be furious but we're going to do great things so thank you all that's right thank you thank you we have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show follow chris on twitter his handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter 
at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.